Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
if you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of John, specifically chapter 14, assuming you want to follow along. If you'll stand, please, for the reading of the word. John 14 begins with, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you may know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak from my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in his Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it.
as Jeff mentioned, next week is Father's Day. You dads, you get, you get a day. Like your moms, you, you got a day. The anniversary of your appearance here on planet Earth, you get a day, your birthday. And let's see, when we're celebrating the birth of Christ, that's pretty much a day. The resurrection of Christ we celebrate for a day. But when the world wants to emphasize its own depravity, when it wants to celebrate things that God calls damnable and abominable, you get a month. One-twelfth of our calendar year is being dedicated to things that are distinctly anti-Christian and anti-biblical. Can we talk about that for a minute? Are we all grown-ups here in the room? <laughs> because as Christian people, as Bible-believing people, it is our job to talk about the things that the Bible says, and the Bible just simply says things about it. I got an email, I got a couple of emails the last couple of weeks, but I got an email in particular this week asking me, does the Bible in any way address the issues of Pride Month? And I wrote back and said, well, yes, of course it does. To begin with, the most often cited sin in the Bible is pride. So what a surprise that human beings, when they want to celebrate their depravity, would refer to that as Pride Month. And that they would take the symbol of God's covenant with the whole earth the rainbow that he put in the sky after Noah's flood, and that they would corrupt that as well and use it as an insignia of their pride. But does the Bible actually directly address the things that constitute this social contagion that is going on right now, this whole Pride thing. Well, yes, it does. Deuteronomy 22.5 actually does say, a woman shall not wear a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh your God. Seems pretty clear. Seems pretty direct. The uh, book of Genesis says God made Adam... And then he made Eve, and he made them male and female. Jesus quotes it when talking about marriage. He talks about how God initially made them male and female. So the genders seem really clear in the Bible, of which there are, count them, two. There's no confusion from a biblical standpoint or from God's standpoint but then when I say things like a woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, that's the King James language, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord your God. When I say that, people say, yeah, but that's the Old Testament. Yeah, but that's the law. 
And we're not under the law. We're under grace. Isn't that exactly what you believe, Jim? Isn't that what you're teaching at this very moment out of the book of Galatians? That we are under grace and not under the old covenant. Well, then let's see if the new covenant has anything to say about it. If you'd like to read along, you can go to Romans 1 which in many ways is a parallel to the book of Galatians that we are studying right now. Paul's great treatise on Christ's full sufficiency and our complete inability to justify ourselves according to the law. And he begins the letter the same place that reformed thinking begins, which is by declaring that people are depraved and just no good. That's what the Bible says about you. And the reason that it's important to start there is if you think you're good, if you think you're capable, if you think you can impress God by your own work, then you don't really need a savior. You are your savior. You are the solution to your problem. But if you understand that the Bible declares everybody to be sinful and depraved, if you understand that we are all under the curse of our own failure to be as holy as God is, well, then you become desperate for a savior. Then you become desperate for somebody to stand in the gap between you and an absolutely holy God. And so the book of Romans begins with saying that everybody is guilty, Jew or Gentile, Everybody is guilty of sin, and that sinful proclivity that is inherent to our fleshly nature manifests itself in particular ways. Romans 1, starting at verse 22. Well, let's start at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. And professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. I just can't bypass that verse because we certainly seem to be living in a clown world right now. We're living in the upside down right now where nothing actually makes sense anymore. And yet the people who are leading the charge into this kind of senselessness consider themselves very smart. They, after all, are the leaders. They, after all, are the politicians. They, after all, are the ones who, when you express an opinion, will shut you down because you're wrong and you're stupid and you have a different opinion and how dare you think differently than me. So they will cancel you, which is why there's 
cancel culture out there because they think they're the right ones. They think they're the smart ones. And God says of them professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. We see that everywhere right now. And how did they become fools? Verse 23. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and of crawling creatures. Therefore, God reacted. How did God react to the depravity of men? To the fact that people have turned their back on him and his word? To the fact that they have begun worshiping things that they themselves have created? How did God react? Verse 24 tells us, therefore God gave them over into the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and they served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Degrading passions that they then in their foolishness become proud of. To demonstrate the depth of their corruption, they are not only degraded, but they're actually proud of it. And one of the characteristics of this prideful, complete corruption is, for their women, exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's going on everywhere. Have you heard of Bud Light? Oh, I know nobody in here drinks beer ever, and so you've never heard of Bud Light. Have you heard of Nike? Have you heard of all these corporations, these supposedly woke corporations, that are joining in to this depravity because they're getting government kickbacks and making money in advancing this completely 
depraved social program that's going on right now, this social contagion that is happening in our society. And God says they are just as guilty as the ones who were doing the depraved stuff because they give hearty approval to those who do practice it. In other words, two things. Does the Bible talk about Pride Month at all? Yes, it does. What does it say about it? It condemns it. You mean just in the Old Testament? No, Old and New Testament. And then it tells us as Christians not to play along, not to participate. Personally, I don't know about you, personally, I refuse to use people's personal pronouns because you don't get to have your own pronouns. You get the pronouns everybody else gets. And talk about the height of narcissism to believe that the whole rest of the world needs to play along with your delusion? You think you are so central to the whole world, you are so self-important, that everybody else who doesn't play along with you are wrong? I mean, that's just delusional narcissism. There's no other psychological way to refer to it. But we as Christians are instructed in the word of God, and that is my job, is to tell you what the word of God says. In the word of God, we are told, don't play along. Don't be part of it. Don't give approval to those who are practicing this depravity and this evil. So, am I going to get shut down on the internet for saying that? Possibly. Maybe. It's why we try to keep our stuff on our own website in the hope that nobody will uh, shut us down. But, you know, we're on a bunch of different services, and they may very well shut us down. But you know what? I'm, I'm instructed by the God of heaven and earth, the maker of everything, the absolute sovereign holy one. I am instructed to tell you the truth regardless of whether the world hates me. Jesus said the world can't hate you. It hates me, and that's why it's going to hate you. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. Because I said exactly what the Bible says, there are people who are going to hear that and just hate me. I don't hate them. What is our reaction supposed to be? Our reaction is to be sympathetic, to be loving, to love our enemies, to tell them the truth, because loving people includes warning people. Look, when you raise your children, you tell them, don't play in the street. You tell them, don't touch that, it's hot. You warn them, not because you hate them, but because you love them. If you genuinely care for people, you will tell them what the maker of everything has actually said and what he expects. Now, the good news at the end of all of this, and if you're playing along, that's point number two. The good news in all of this is you'll notice that God is the sovereign over all of that. It says he Turn them over to a depraved mind. He is the one who is allowing this in his creation. He won't always allow it. The day of judgment is coming. The day is coming that we pray in the Lord's Prayer all the time. The day when God's will will be done on earth the way it is in heaven. But before that happens, there's going to be a time of trouble on earth such as there never was or ever will be again because God, get this right, is not mocked. 
And as people in this upside-down world and this clown society, as they continue to rebel against God, the Bible says they are storing up wrath. Against that day of wrath when God is going to judge. And that is what the Bible says about Pride Month. Got it? Turn to the book of Galatians. We left off last week right around verse 10, I do believe. I'm being confirmed by the people who are paying attention to every week's lesson, so good. So I'm going to start reading chapter 3, verse 1. To build up speed to get into verse 10 because it's really necessary for us to understand the connections that Paul is making between the new covenant of salvation by grace through faith and its complete sufficiency versus the law. And Paul is reaching back into the Old Testament and mentioning Abraham in order to demonstrate the validity of his theology of salvation by grace without the works of the law. And he says in chapter 3, verse 1, You unthinking, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so unthinking, so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand. I didn't mention it last week. pro would be that word. It's a single word. Took four English words to translate it. Preached the gospel beforehand. He did that to Abraham. And what that means is he told Abraham good news before it actually occurred. And what Paul's referring to there is when he said you're going to have descendants like the sands of the sea, like the stars of the heavens. When he said that, He also told him, through your progeny, through your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And Paul is saying, that's really good news. Sometimes when we see the word gospel, we get those gears going in our head where we think gospel, that means the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Not the way the Bible uses it. There are a great many things that are referred to as good news, as gospels. And so God, foreseeing in advance what he was going to do and through Abraham was going to bring about a people 
who would ultimately bring about Messiah to the planet. That is all really good news, but he hadn't done any of it yet. And that's why the word is pro-euangelizomai. It means to preach good news, to tell good news to somebody in advance before you even do it. So that is a declaration of God's sovereignty, God's control of human history, that God can say in advance, this is what I'm going to do. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. That's where we ended last week. Starting at verse 10, we are finally to the new material, which means everything I've set up till now is technically introduction, and I think you all know the rule. For as many as are under the works of the law, follow this one. For all the legalists who want to say that you can justify yourself before God by keeping the law. By the way, there is also a growing interest in what is known as post-millennial theonomy that is growing on the internet these days. And yet they seem to ignore the idea of what Paul says right here. For as many as are under the works of the law are under a curse. Theonomic thinking says that the society itself is going to be restored. It's going to come under God's law. And that we, as the church, are going to cause the world to become progressively better. Absolutely the opposite of what we're seeing in the world right now. But then they will argue, well, perhaps we are in the early church still. Or they will argue, you know, you guys who think in a more Christ is going to return soon way, you're pessimists because you see people getting worse and worse. And we believe that people are going to get better and better, even though the Bible says men are going to wax worse and worse. The only reason I bring it up is that that entire theological construct has to deal with the fact that they are saying that they are going to utilize the law of God in order to improve the society. And yet verse 10 of chapter 3 of Galatians says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. So I really don't understand the attraction to the notion that imposing the law on the entire society is going to make the society better. I just don't get that, especially if Paul is being honest here. If you're under the law, you're under a curse. And then he's going to demonstrate it. He's going to prove it. Micah, if you would, look up Deuteronomy 27, 26, and I'll get to you in just a moment. And if you want, Steve, look up Habakkuk 2, 4. And Tom, if you would, look up Leviticus 18. You're going to read verses 1 to 5. And we'll get to all those in a moment. As many as are under the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written. Notice what Paul is doing. He is making his theological argument based on what the scriptures say. That, again, is why we spend so much time looking at what the scripture says 
and then conforming our thinking and our theology to what the scripture says. Because that is demonstrated for us by all the New Testament authors who are continually referring to what the scripture already says. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That seems like a very clear rule. It is already written that everyone No matter who you are, if you don't abide by everything that's written in the book of the law, then you're under a curse. That's why in the book of James, James would argue that if you miss the law in any one point, you're guilty of the entirety of the law. It's not a uh, partial game. It's a total sum game. If you're going to be justified by the law, you got to keep the law entirely, perpetually, continually from the day you're born until the day you die. That's the only way to justify yourself by the law. And since nobody has ever done that, that means that everybody is under a curse if they utilize the law to try to justify themselves. Micah, if you would... Deuteronomy 27 is just a list of things. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And then finally, Moses wraps it up by saying, you know what? All of it, the whole thing. Read it, Micah. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say amen. And all the people of Israel agree. Yes, cursed is everyone who does not do absolutely everything in the law. Okay, so quick survey. How many of you so far have kept the law perfectly and perpetually your whole life? Don't even pretend, Paul. (laughs) Tried to sneak up his hand. Yeah, none of us. And that means we're all under the curse of the law. That's why we need a savior. That's why we need an intercessor to stand between us and a holy, righteous judge. Because we are all cursed, because every one of us did not abide, continue in all the things that are written in the book of the law, because we have not performed them. So, Paul comes to this conclusion then. A minute ago, he told us that As many as are under the works of the law are under a curse of the law. Therefore, verse 11 says, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. It's self-evident. It's in the scripture. It's provable. It's axiomatic. If you think you're going to justify yourself before God The law is not the way you're going to do it because you've already broken the law, therefore you're already under a curse, therefore God's going to judge you. Paul argues it's just logical. It's provable that no one is justified by the law before God. That's evident. And then he's going to quote from Habakkuk 2.4. And Habakkuk 2.4 is within the context. You might remember that, uh, I don't know, a couple of months ago, we were talking about theonomy. And we read out of Habakkuk. And we saw that Habakkuk was confused by what God was doing because he saw the sinfulness of Israel. And God's reply to him is, I'm going to bring somebody even worse down on you to judge you for how bad you are. 
And Habakkuk was confused by it. How can that be the answer? And God ends up saying, the one who contends with me, that's the one whose mind is not right. But then the just man, the righteous man, the justified person is the one who trusts me no matter what I do because I am the sovereign God and I do know what I'm doing. Therefore, the just man is going to live by faith. Paul plucks that out of the book of Habakkuk and says the righteous man shall live by faith as a demonstration of the contrast between trying to justify yourself by the law of God versus how you actually get justified, which is by having faith in God regardless of what God is doing because he is God, because he is sovereign and he knows what he's doing. Habakkuk 2.4, I gave that to somebody. I give that to you, Steve. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him but the righteous shall live by his faith. And so Paul picks that verse in order to prove that justification is a result of having faith in God. Now, I know I mentioned it previously, but that is also the verse that turned Martin Luther's thinking. I mean, Martin Luther, who had knees like camels, who used to climb up the Lateran Palace steps on his knees trying to justify himself by the law. It was the comprehension, the understanding that the just man is the one who lives by faith. That was the beginning of what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. So Paul says that no one is justified by the law before God is evident For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, verse 12, the law is not of faith. He continues to draw the contrast. These are two different things. You're either going to justify yourself before God by your flesh, and you're not going to be able to do it, and you're going to fall under the curse, and you're going to be judged, or you're going to have faith in God Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what's happening in life, you have faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ to save you. Therefore, the contrast is dramatic. The law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. So now what he's saying is in the law, it is said that if you do it, perfectly, perpetually, from the time you're born till the time you die, that that is a way that God offers as justification to prove that nobody could do it. So that nobody could rise up in their flesh, in their ego, in their, dare I say, pride, and say, I can do it, I'll decide for myself, I will justify myself in my own actions before God. So Tom now is going to read Leviticus 18, and I'd like you to read the first five verses, one through five. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules 
If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So there it is. It's right in the law. Notice what God also did with Israel, because he's doing the same thing with us today as the church. He's saying, the people of Egypt, they have practices. They do certain things, but don't you do it. Don't be like them. The Canaanites have practices. Don't be like them. Be a separate people. Be a holy people. Be a righteous people. I think I could make the very same argument at this moment and say, the world has practices. Don't be like them. The society in America right now has practices, things that they've put into law, things that they've voted on. Don't be like them. Be a separate people. Be a holy people. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, the law does say, he who practices them shall live by them. But then nobody ever did it. So verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And that's the answer. I hope that by understanding that you're under a curse, and that curse is going to separate you from God eternally. And there is only one way for you to avoid that curse and that judgment, and the way to avoid it isn't you. It's not what you're thinking. It's not what you're doing. To be separated from that curse, to be redeemed out of that curse, to be bought out of that curse is only through Christ. Christ redeemed us from that curse of the law. And how did he do it? He became a curse for us. For it is written, this is Deuteronomy 21, 22 and 23. If you go back and read it, it says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And it's within the context of God saying that there are certain sins that are worthy of the death penalty. And if you kill a man by hanging him on a tree, you've got to take him down by sundown so that the land itself is not polluted. And yet everyone who is hung on a tree is under a curse. So Christ himself was nailed to a tree, and he hung on a tree. He hung on a cross, and in doing so, he became the sufficient sacrifice for our sinfulness, for our trespasses, for the many ways that we have acted against God, for the many ways that we have not fulfilled the law. And so by becoming a curse, though he himself was personally innocent, by taking on that curse, he did it as a substitute for someone. He did it as a substitute for us, the people he loves. He became a curse for us. And he did that perfectly in keeping with the law of God because it's already written, yet again, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In that single verse, Paul just reached from Genesis all the way to the ultimate salvation of all God's people. 
That is his panorama of the entirety of human history and salvation. That there was a promise of blessing made to Abraham. Through your seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And how did that come to fruition? Through Jesus Christ. And then because Jesus Christ accomplished the blessings of Abraham and brought those blessings to the Gentiles, the result was that we Gentiles received the Holy Spirit of God separating us, accomplishing our righteousness and holiness, redeeming us utterly and completely from all the things we could not justify ourselves from. It's it's just a remarkable theology. It's a remarkable reality. It's a remarkable thing that the Bible keeps telling us, which is give up on yourself because you cannot justify yourself. And if you attempt to, you're going to be under a curse and be judged by God. But Jesus Christ is a full, complete, sufficient Savior and Redeemer. And by his single sacrificial act of hanging on the tree for you as a substitute for you, he took the curse of God on your behalf and then redeemed you, paying the full sufficient price of his own blood in order to redeem his people as a sin sacrifice. And therefore, you receive the down payment of your salvation, which is the very Holy Spirit of God that takes up residence in you. And All of that from the Abrahamic covenant all the way to your salvation is a result of what Jesus Christ did and not anything about you. Pretty impressive. Great plan. Great plan. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Okay, now starting in verse 15, Paul is going to demonstrate the impossibility of destroying the Abrahamic covenant. The promise God made to Abraham has two parts, a physical part and a spiritual part. We went through this last week. We've gone through this time and time again here at GCA. So let's see if you remember anything, and if you don't, I quit. Right here and now, I'm done. Okay, there's a physical part of the Abrahamic covenant. What is it? Land. Land. You are all so lucky that Tom was here. (laughs) (laughs) The land promise. I'm going to give this land to your descendants forever. That's a forever covenant. That land belongs to them forever. There is also a very spiritual aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. What is it? In your seed, through your descendants, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Okay, that's the very spiritual aspect of it. Now Paul is going to argue, starting in verse 15, that you can't destroy that covenant. You can't do anything to eradicate that covenant. Because that covenant was an unconditional covenant that God made with himself. And because he didn't have any human cooperation or joint participation in the formation of the covenant, then no human can destroy it. And now he's going to argue that even the coming of the law and the dissolution of the law, the finishing of the law in Jesus Christ, even that 
doesn't change the Abrahamic covenant, which means the land belongs to Israel still. That covenant's good. And it means Gentiles are brought to faith in Jesus Christ still. By the way, we would all agree that Gentiles, we ourselves, are brought to faith in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit of God because of that covenant, which is what Paul keeps saying. Those who are of faith are the children of Abraham. So that means the spiritual aspect is provably, demonstrably true right now. So what about the physical part? That has to also be true because it already has evidence that God is keeping his word to the Abrahamic covenant. So all aspects of that covenant have to ultimately come true. Brethren, verse 15, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet When it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Okay, so you're going to get to make a covenant in your life. You're going to get to make a testament. You're going to call it your last will and testament. That's why it's called that, because you get one time in your life to say, okay, here's what happens to my stuff when I die. Now, if the will very clearly says that one of your children gets everything, pay attention, James, and that, and that one of your children gets nothing, now really pay attention, James, if that's what you write in your will, after you're dead, nobody gets to change that. We just agree with that. That's just a standard we all agree with. And that's what Paul is arguing here, that speaking even in human terms, even though it's a man's covenant or agreement or testament, yet once it's ratified, no one sets it aside. No one says, never mind, that doesn't count anymore. And nobody adds conditions to it. Nobody changes a covenant, even if it's just a human covenant. But God made a covenant. Verse 16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And he does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. And Paul says, and that is Christ. In other words, when God said to Abram, Through your seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Were all the families of the earth blessed through Jacob? Were all the families of the earth blessed through Issachar? Okay, that's a direct great-great-grandson. No. Instead, that blessing that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, that blessing came through one person, Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul says, when God said that, he was designating one particular person, and that particular person was Jesus Christ, the very one who brought about the fulfillment of the promises. What I'm saying is this. Okay, Paul's going to clarify now that he's written that. What I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, After the Abrahamic covenant does not invalidate 
a covenant that was previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. So what Paul is saying very clearly is the fact that the law came, the fact that the law accomplished what it was meant to accomplish in no way changes that original covenant that God made with himself, that God himself ratified with himself. That covenant cannot be changed by anybody, by any human, because it's a covenant that was already accomplished and ratified. And God is the one who ratified it. Therefore, no amount of human interfering can change what that original promise was. And aren't you glad that's true? Because if human beings could interfere with the validity of the Abrahamic covenant that leads to salvation by grace through faith, if human beings could mess with it, oh, they would. And then what hope do you have? That's why God had to do it all by himself. That's why he had to do it unconditionally. That's why he had to do it by his own sovereign power. And he couldn't leave it up to human beings. But that also means that that covenant, that promise, is just as good today as it's ever been. Proven by the fact that even today, Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the way God prepared it from the beginning when he gave the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham and said, through your seed, he was designating the Messiah. He was designating the Christ. And therefore, the law that came and went doesn't change the fact that the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is Christ has always been Christ, was designated from the beginning as Christ. And the law came and went, but Christ is still the focus of all justification and satisfaction before God. And the law, with its multiplicity of rules, doesn't change that. Because once that covenant is ratified, nothing can change it. You get it? Yes, sir. I love Paul's argument. Verse 18 For if the inheritance, this is interesting now, what inheritance is he talking about? The inheritance of the Abrahamic covenant, which, by the way, includes the land inheritance. And if the inheritance is based on the law, then it's no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. An unconditional promise from God based on a covenant that he struck with himself. Therefore, nobody can alter it or change it or add anything to it. And for all the people who say God is done with Israel and he's not going to bring them back to the land that he gave them as an everlasting covenant, you're, what's that word? Wrong. You're wrong. You're just wrong because the Bible says just the opposite. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So let's finish with this. Well, then why the law? That's the natural question we would all ask. Well, then if God made a promise and it's fulfilled in Christ... And in between, 430 years later, there was a law that has a starting point and an ending point, which Paul could now look back on and refer to as the ministry of death. What's the point? Why was there ever a law? Why the law then? 
It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. So between the time that God established the law and the time that the mediator, that Christ himself came to the planet, during that time Israel was under the dictates of the law in order to demonstrate their transgressions. Paul says it more clearly and spells it out more exactly in Romans 7. So let's turn there and that's where we'll finish this morning. Turn to Romans 7 and I think we'll have a greater understanding of the Pauline theology on this topic. Romans 7, we're even going to start in verse 7. What are we going to say then? Well, see, now verse 6, well, verse 5. Okay, I'm just going to read starting from verse 1. Okay, 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 okay. Do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. So he's speaking to the Jews who know the law. That the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So he's using that as an indication that you are bound to, married to the law, as long as you live if you are under the law. So then while her husband is living... If she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now Paul is going to explain that analogy that he just created. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, that would be under the law, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Well, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Okay, so what is Paul arguing here? He's saying, I was going through my life, and I would not have known of my sin against God had God not told me, don't do that. I would have thought I was fine. I would have gone about desiring all kinds of things, coveting all kinds of things. And I wouldn't have understood that that was wrong, except that God said, don't do that. And that's when I realized, oh, I'm rebelling against God. I'm actually sinning by the things that I'm doing and the things that I desire. So Paul concludes, 
that he was once just alive, living, doing whatever he wanted apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive in me and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, we read that, Tom read it, that if you could do the whole of the law constantly, continually, that you could live by it. This commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me because sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, killed me. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments. There's nothing wrong with the 613 ordinances. It's all good. It's all right. It's all holy. The problem is us. We just can't do it. But there's nothing wrong with it. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And therefore, did that which was good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it may be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which was good. That through the commandment, sin might become utterly Sinful. That's the purpose of the law, according to Paul. The reason that God gave the law was to prove to everybody across the board, Jew and Gentile, whoever you are, the law proved that you just can't be as good and as righteous and as holy as God. And worse yet, that you are a rebel against God and that you are constantly sinning against God because the law stands and says, don't do the very things you're doing. Don't be the very way you're being. Don't rebel against God the way you're rebelling. And we do it continually because our flesh and the sin that is inherent in us constantly breaks the rules of God and the law of God. So, Paul says here in Galatians, what what are we going to do? What are you going to do about that? How are you going to be justified? Well, you can't. You're going to fall under a curse because everyone who's under the law is under the curse of the law. So how are you going to be delivered? How are you going to be redeemed? How are you going to be justified? There's only one solution. And it's the same solution that God intended from the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant when he said, through your seed, through that one, through Christ, through the Savior, that's how all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So Paul points out that it is Christ and Christ alone who is able to justify you by taking that curse, taking it in his body, dying for it, dying as your sufficient sin sacrifice, and that's where justification comes from. So many weeks now, I have closed by saying, run to Christ. That is my admonition to you. Run to Christ. That's my instruction to you. Run to Christ. So today, instead, I'm going to say, if you can run to Christ, run to Christ. Because your only other option is to try to justify yourself in your pride, in your arrogance, in your sense of self-sufficiency. You're going to go to God and say, look what I did. 
And he will judge you eternally for that. It's Christ or it's judgment. And the law is no help. Got it? Next week, we're going to see Paul say, if you try to be justified by the law, Christ is no help to you, and you have fallen from grace. If you don't have Christ, and if you don't have grace, what you got? You got absolutely nothing. You have nothing to look forward to except the judgment of God. So if even grace... And even Christ can't help you if you're trying to be justified by the law. My admonition to you would be, stop it. Just quit it. Take sides with God against yourself. Admit you're the sinner that you are. And run to Christ. Got it? I'll be over there if you want me. I know whom I have believed. Let's sing it together. I know.
for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.